Melancholia Written by Craig Warner and read by the author Dedicated to Freddie Olson James would lie in bed every night, or rather every morning, because he always woke at about three, and stare into the darkness, dreading with a kind of dull ache the day to come. He raised himself from his bed only when the filtered grey light illuminated his bedroom. He tried not to rise before this because to walk about the house in the dark after having given up on sleep made him feel like a ghost. He would perform the same actions every day, and at the end of each day he would climb into bed. He dreaded his days because he didn't understand them. He marched through them admirably, pretending he was like everyone else, but he carried with him a profound sense of loss, though as far as he could remember, he had never lost a thing. Out in the world, he watched people smile, exchange views, and laugh as if they hadn't a care in the world, though some of them, he happened to know, led miserable little lives and had nothing to tell but tales of defeat. Despite this, they seemed positioned squarely in this world. They did not seem to wonder why they were here, or to question the meaning of their days. They just were. They were fully themselves. They were fully here. And there was an end of it. Their position here ended with a full stop. Why did Jim's end with a question mark, or on some days with an ellipsis? Once in a while he tried sleeping downstairs, but the thoughts chased him onto the couch and found him there and animated his attempts to sleep. It did occur to him that this state may be what people meant by mental illness. He sometimes toyed with the idea, and it brought him a strange comfort. It would explain things. And didn't they have medication for mental illness? Wasn't there something out there somewhere that could give him relief? He thought about the medication they must have. It would be small and possibly dissolve under the tongue. It would work within 60 seconds, such was the rate of absorption. The neurotransmitters that carried his thoughts, his doubts, his occasional terrors, and it had to be acknowledged that every so often, deep in the morning, at the juncture between sleep and waking, his imagination offered him a nightmare image, inexplicable though it might be in the light of day, that made his soul collapse and flooded him with the certainty that survival to sunrise would take a heroism he just didn't have. These neurotransmitters, once the medication was absorbed, would be stopped dead in their tracks. The thoughts would be shut off. James would rise from his bed or his couch in wonderment at the profound and beautiful stillness of the world, and he would drift to the window and look out at the trees and watch their limbs waving and with their undulations he would experience sympathetic undulations of pleasure, because the noise of his doubt would have been silenced. These imaginings were restorative in themselves, for as long as they lasted, because they offered him a much-needed holiday from the cruel precisions of reality. It had occurred to him that if he could just move his mind to optimistic thoughts and hold it there, he would have no need of the medication, but this was not something he seemed able to do. If it were, he would have control of his mind, and all inner discord would be resolved summarily by an act of will. 
The dream of a medication accompanied him through seemingly endless days, and when he finally reached the moment when action, real action, in the physical world became necessary, he made an appointment with his doctor, who was normally very hard to see, but who had had a fortuitous cancellation. James and his doctor had a chat. The doctor smiled and made a pleasant remark or two, but managed quickly to ascertain that James suffered from something called anxiety. Fortunately, there was a cure for anxiety. It was called Valium. Once you started taking it, the leaflet promised, you never had to suffer anxiety again. James went home with the prescription folded neatly in his pocket, and he didn't go to the chemist straight away, but kept the prescription in a book for a couple of days, a book on string theory, one of the few books he possessed in hardcover. String theory was the answer to every question, or so was its reputation. Now, it would seem, string theory might have to share this reputation with Valium. James filled the prescription and was surprised that the pills came in something called blister packs, rather than a nice Victorian glass bottle with a stopper that might better befit its mystique. But James didn't mind the blister pack. He was open to discovering all the true things about this panacea and allow it room to be itself. He took one of the pills one evening and put on a CD, Ildebrando d'Arcangelo singing Handel arias. He sometimes played music in the house. He had a fine CD player and speakers with walnut housing. He sat in his leather chair, careful to place it at the top of the triangle that formed the sound stage. Some would class him an audiophile, and listened to the CD. Ildebrando d'Argangelo had a voice like oak. He was a bass. He had a sweetness and flexibility even in the lowest end of his range. He was a strong man, too, physically and solid. James had seen him sing Le Porello at Covent Garden. Ildebrando controlled Handel with agility and musicality. His voice was strong and masculine. James drifted around the sound of the voice and longed to latch himself around Ildebrando's neck and hang there while he hit a low note so he could cling to the note itself and feel its warm resonance vibrate through him, through his body. He felt he was doing this in a half-sleep, clinging lightly to the heavy dark notes and resonating along with them. Where was his father? He had died some time ago. There was no father left. They had driven together, Jim and his father, to the end of both their lives. Only Jim was still here, wrapped around the music, breathing with it. Ildebrando sang Ombra Mai Fu, an aria in which a king sings to a tree, blessing it and thanking it for its shade. It bore the distinction of being the only aria in the repertoire in which a singer directly addressed a tree. As the aria was sung, Jim noticed the flailing branches outside his window, the branches of a conifer, the one tree that could be seen from his leather chair. There was a slight wind. Its branches moved, not with the aria, but to a different, unheard song behind it. James stood up and went to the window to see if the tree did cast a shadow in which a king might sit. But the light was grey and diffuse, and it was late afternoon light. The tree cast no shadow that could be seen. In retreating from the window, James collided with the wall, which was strange, because he didn't feel clumsy, 
As he was standing anyway, he decided to flail his arms about in the air, vaguely along with the music, though not in time with its rhythms. He was just moving to the sound of sound. He twirled, careful not to collide with the wall again. He felt as if Hildebrando's notes were solid, and that his arms could rest on them and slide along them. The notes created an updraft, and with no muscle at all, Jim could float his arms upon them and swing about like a weightless child. He was soon on the floor, lying on his back, but still holding his arms aloft, or perhaps letting the music hold his arms aloft. Solidity was space and space solidity. His front room was oceanic. He was finally a creature of the deep. When the music came to an end, Jim remained on the floor looking up and out the window. From where he lay, he could just see the last dainty fingers of one branch of the conifer twisting on the air before darkness came and took everything away. At some point, he made his way in the dark like a phantom up the stairs without needing light and found his way into his bed where he slept the night through. In the morning, his eyes opened, but he didn't rouse himself immediately. He lay staring up at the ceiling feeling complete. When he wished to, and not before, he slid out of bed and went downstairs to make some coffee. He loved his coffee maker. It ground the beans fresh and made a cup of espresso with a single press of a button. He sat and drank it, staring out the window, looking at the tree. So medication was the answer. All this time, medication had been the answer. He had been looking for the answer for eternity, and all the time the answer had been a simple one. Medication. He knew other people took it. He had known about medication all his life, but rather in the way he had known about minnows, or the planet Neptune, or cold potato soup. Some things inhabited the margins of his consciousness, where things were perfectly nameable, but had fuzzy contours. Was he meant to take the medication all the time? Had this single pill brushed away his melancholia for good? He wondered if perhaps his mind had once been subjected to a breeze from the north-northwest on a leap year, or if he had sneezed while laughing, or if some two incompatible memories had flashed through his mind at the same moment causing a schism, a dissonance which unsettled his consciousness until now, until this time, when a single pill had righted it again. Could things be so simple? Things were. They often were. He knew this to be the case, and he allowed himself to dare to hope that this was the case now. He now saw things that had been there all along. Things in his house appeared before him, and he would look at them and see them. He pondered them. The stairs were a source of some amusement and wonder. His espresso maker invoked deep gratitude. Pictures on the wall. There was one of his father and mother his mother, whom he didn't recall knowing, and his father, both smiling the way people do when a camera is pointed at them. This picture he looked at for an indeterminate period, and then went outside in the garden to be in the air, and to look at things outside, the way they were outside, in the moving air. He quickly tired of the outside and came back in, fidgeted, forgot to see things, moved inside himself. He looked at the packet of Valium, one to be taken three times a day, or as required. He looked at the clock. It was two. He'd been awake since eight, so roughly half the day had gone. It was time to take another. He swallowed it and listened to music till bedtime when he took another. 
Before Valium, he had all but forgotten about his music collection, which included a good deal of early music sung by bass baritones. This music now rang in his head as he fell asleep, and when he woke up it was still there. But just to keep it in place, he went to the blister pack on his table and took another pill. He took another mid-morning, another after lunch, one before dinner, and one at bedtime, as required. The next day he also took them as required, but his requirements expanded to fill the available number of tablets, and he realized that if he were to keep up this lifestyle, he would have to make some sort of arrangement with his doctor. He would soon have no Valium left, and this thought was a source of concern. His doctor gave him a prescription for some more tablets, but only after he convinced him he had misplaced what remained of the others. James could see he would have to find a steady source of Valium somewhere else, and he instinctively turned to the Internet. He googled the question, where can I buy Valium online without a prescription? To his astonishment and delight, this question returned over 10 million hits. He submitted his credit card to one site that promised Valium would arrive within a week, and indeed it came in four days, from the Philippines. But then he had to cancel his credit card, because almost instantly, tickets for several international flights from, for example, Madrid to Colombia, were purchased on his account. He had ordered 100 to start, but they were only 5 milligram pills, and said so they were gone in less than two weeks. And when he saw that their numbers were diminished, he ordered some more, this time 10 milligram tablets, from another source. He noticed his motor skills were impacted in a way that his brain couldn't quite mediate. Under the influence of alcohol, he could always tell in advance when he might have difficulty executing a movement as planned, but on Valium his brain told him again and again that all motor systems were fully operational, and again and again he was surprised when they turned out not to be. He made his way to the piano one evening when he was listening to no other music, and he tried to play a simple Schumann piece to be precise, half a Schumann piece, with only his left hand. He stumbled through it and could not make music. But he hadn't touched a piano in a while, and it felt good to reach deep into the bed of the keyboard and reassure himself that he could still send notes up into the air. Yet they were not music. They were merely notes. He wanted to hear them individually, so he tapped them out slowly and indulgently, experimenting with overlapping decays, strange, urgent tremolos that were a call up to something, a conjuring, maybe a question posed in a wrong language, but which still managed to ask, and still managed to convey hope for an answer. He climbed the stairs, which were like a major scale in sea, and folded himself up in bed, where his hammers were muffled and the chemistry of his brain brought silence to him, to his ears, and to his belly, leaving everything smothered in warmth. He thought of God, too. He hadn't thought of God for years, but somehow now he thought of God. Somehow now the thought of God slipped into his mind as if bundled with more mundane thoughts, and it formed a complex beauty made partly of abstractions, partly of music, and somehow insistently, queerly, partly of a kind of flesh. This God thing would look after him, challenge him, love him in some remote way, and furnish the universe with objects and possibility and sounds. There was a little doubt that Ildebrando d'Arcangelo, or someone or something very much like him, was its priest. The god thought became more persistent, and after a time it flipped into a kind of resolution. He decided 
seemingly all at once but it had been gathering that his use of these drugs was bad practice and that their role in his life should be challenged he told no one official about his plans to stop he told no one unofficial either but of course there was no one unofficial to tell there was a small victorian medicinal bottle that one of the landscapers had unearthed in his back garden and it stood in the window on the ledge halfway up the stairs and around it could be seen the white winter sky but through it the sky was dark blue like the blue of the sky in paris in late summer when a similar blue radiated above the latin quarter and lasted for two hours before giving way to night and this thing showed him a little square of sky from a time when he was young and used to wander up the boulevard saint germain and down it seeking companionship this thing showed him that there was possibility even if it worked in reverse even if it was memory that held a bit of sky for him and even if he couldn't see his way to such a patch of sky in his future that didn't mean he wouldn't find it or stumble upon it or upon something outwardly dissimilar but with similar powers this small square of blue broke across his soul with a fan of light that offered him a strange timeless promise to collect the fruits of which he knew he had to be absolutely clear he flushed all of his pills down the toilet and he waited he waited for the return of his old self the self that was part human part phantom searching for the thing it could not remember but knew it had lost but he didn't return immediately first he entered into an ever-deepening agitation laced with fearfulness breathlessness panic it came upon him mostly at night as he was trying to sleep the apprehension of horrors was not peripheral or distant but central primary he still could not ascertain the subject matter of the horrors but he tried to drag his concentration away from them as he tried in desolate vain to sleep he consoled himself with one piece of knowledge that withdrawal effects decrease with time unfortunately this one thing that he knew turned out to be wrong online he searched for the truth but he didn't have the patience to read it so there it was the knowledge unseen lighting up his monitor it is normally recommended that withdrawal from valium take place over several weeks as due to the drug's very long half-life a sudden discontinuation can result in serious symptoms including suicidal ideation heart palpitations seizures and temporary paralysis on the seventh day after discarding his pills he must have fallen asleep listening to an audiobook because he woke up lines of the book being read out from the ipad on his bedside table unable to move he tried to reach his ipad to turn off the sound but his arm would not respond he tried again thinking his arm must be asleep though he felt no tingling and it wouldn't move at all he rocked his body back and forth, and his arm flopped with the movement, but it seemed to have no independent ability. He tried to get off the bed, but could only manage it by rocking again, more violently this time, until he fell on the floor. He managed to land on his hands and knees. He crawled to the phone. He couldn't lift the receiver in his hand because his thumb wouldn't oppose. He knocked it to the floor and managed to push the buttons with his knuckles. He cried out for an ambulance, but the emergency services couldn't understand what he was saying. His lips and tongue wouldn't move in the manner required to form words. When they, at the other end, suggested ambulance, he managed a version of yes and was put through to ambulance triage. And though he still couldn't form the syllables needed to convince them to come urgently, he managed to convince them to come at all. 
They promised they would arrive within an hour. James negotiated the stairs one at a time, sliding down them carefully. When he was on the ground floor, he dragged himself to the storm porch and opened the door and returned, bent and hobbling, to the rug by the couch. He sat on the floor and waited. Everything had hidden, crazy content invested deep in its physicality, in its colors and darkness, and even the light hid things. When he closed his eyes, the nightmare felt like home. When he opened his eyes, he felt he was in the wrong place, and the nightmare was lit up with life. But he did open his eyes again and again, thinking each time that the light would dissolve the nightmare, and again and again it didn't. There was nowhere to put himself, nothing to cling to. When the paramedics came, they let themselves in through the open door and helped him into an ambulance. The ambulance ground its engine and rolled on. He felt the juddering movement beneath his weight as they drove the back roads to the hospital, and he saw the trees passing outside the window. Once before he had driven, and trees had flown past. When was that? He had hit a tree. Where was that? He closed his eyes. Please don't hit a tree. He opened them again. Where are we? Is it now or then? He was strapped to nothing, and he keenly felt that if they hit a solid object, he would fly forward and suffer damage and possibly lose his life the way his father did the time when James was driving them to a recital. His father had no interest in attending and hit a tree. James woke soon after the collision, and something was missing, something was gone, but it wasn't his father. His father was still alive. It took him four and a half weeks to die. James waited. He waited for his father to die. He wouldn't know what to do without the friction his father brought to a room. His life with his father had become an endless contention about the piano. James never wanted to stop playing. His father insisted he give it up. He said it was somehow wrong, his son's love of the piano. James played when he woke up. It was always Bach for the first three hours, then Schumann, who occupied a special place in James's heart, and Schubert too. And he loved the simpler pieces of Schoenberg and the more spiritually complex pieces of Messiaen. He played vingt regards sur l'enfant Jésus with an almost religious devotion, ever unraveling their secrets and reconcealing them from himself with his playing. Nothing but music kept a lock on the door to the divine, and he toyed with the lock. He never tired of scales. They held up the whole musical edifice, yes, but also he just loved the feel of them under his fingers. He memorized and practiced and adored them all, the Lydian, the Phrygian, the Locrian. The Mixolydian had been one of his favorites. It involved all the white keys, but for the A-sharp that had to be played with the fourth finger of his right hand, the ring finger, the digitus medicinalis. He strummed and strummed this scale, playing it as a chord, eight ringing bells decaying together on the air. Only the clash of his father's interminable argument dragged him out of his trance and into the light. His father couldn't have been right in the head. No one could sustain an argument for so many years without varying it. James wondered if his father had been like that when his mother was around. But he imagined not. 
he imagined his father to be full of the charm of love, and conjectured that the loss of a loving wife at such a young age trapped him in a dissatisfaction which sang itself to exhaustion against the desires of his son. When he was not thus occupied at home, his father was a baritone in a local chorus, a chorus more notable for its cliques and gossip than for any music it produced. There were no fights. James's father never shouted, but he managed to contaminate the silence on which music was meant to be painted, so that James could never make that final escape and slip into the emptiness and forget himself entirely and wander among chords and between intervals and never come out again. In the ambulance... Jim opened his eyes and saw the trees flash by. He had driven them into a tree, not to avoid something in the road, but because there was a bend in the road and the tree was concealed in the dark. He had been driving quickly. He always drove as quickly as the conditions would allow, not to get to his destination sooner or to race faster away from the place he was leaving, but just to feel the speed. His father had been pulled out whole, but something of James had got stuck. Now James arrived at the hospital and was put in A&E to wait. For some reason he chose to stand up and jog in place. That made him feel safer, and it took the edge off his panic. A nurse sat him down, and a doctor came to him behind the curtain and asked him what was wrong. James could just say something about Valium comprehensibly, and they gave him five milligrams, which softened him and allowed him to speak, but by then he realized he had little to say. He wanted to be protected, but he knew hospitals didn't do that. The doctor asked a male nurse to bring over a cup of tea, and when the tea arrived, with a genial smile from the nurse, James experienced it as a profound kindness. The doctor, who had no notes, asked him how his hand was healing. The scar was visible and fairly recent, where he had lost the fourth finger of his right hand. Jim was able to say that it had healed well and that he didn't feel its presence at all anymore. How had it happened? James joked that he'd had a duel with an adjustable steering column in the middle of the night. The doctor laughed. James couldn't tell him that, in fact, he'd lost nothing but he knew it probably wouldn't sound reasonable. There was little they could do about Jim's withdrawal symptoms, and the doctor suggested he see his GP to get a titration dose and come off the Valium more slowly. Abrupt benzodiazepine withdrawal could result in seizures, paralysis, even death. But Jim decided he'd been through enough. He didn't want to touch the stuff ever again. He would manage... A taxi took James home through the angled white winter light which slashed its way across the countryside. He could walk now. He was embarrassed and afraid. Inside, he went to the piano and opened it. He sat and felt the keys beneath his fingers. He played a Mixolydian scale with his right hand, and at the point where the black key was to be played, he lacked a finger. He tried again, and again there was no finger to play the black key. He played it again and couldn't finish it. No finger. He closed the piano, stood up, moved away. He thought about putting on his Ildebrando D'Arcangelo CD, but ended only by looking at the cover, at the picture of handsome Ildebrando, smiling. He felt a deep pain in his stomach. He fell over with it. He clutched himself. Was it pain? 
Where was his father? He was with the trees. Where was the sound of his father? He listened, and there was nothing. He sobbed and sobbed. Something was giving way inside him, but he didn't know what it was. Why had he played with medicine? It had not been made for this kind of thing. What had he been feeling that made him take it? He couldn't remember now. Something had happened before this short period of listening. Some feeling had appeared at a distance. Some feeling that would never fully arrive. Maybe that was the problem? That it would never fully arrive? He decided it was time to sleep, or at least to try. He climbed onto the couch and lay on his back, staring out the window. He slept and woke, slept and woke, slept a little more and woke again, just as the light outside started to fade. He could remember almost nothing about recent events, but he knew things were not right. He would address them in the morning. A slight wind shook a branch of the tree, and it seemed to wave to him through the window. Or perhaps it was trying to summon him with a single coniferous finger. But the darkness overtook it and made the tree, the house, and the world disappear. That was Melancholia, written by Craig Warner, read and produced by the author for The Termination Line.